0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode, The Obama Doctrine, America's Role in a Complicated World, features a conversation between Benjamin Rhodes and Jeffrey Goldberg that took place at the festival at the end of June. Rhodes is a deputy national security advisor to President Obama. He was the chief U.S. negotiator in the secret normalization talks with Cuba and has been a central player in the making of American foreign policy since 2009. Goldberg is a national correspondent for The Atlantic, where he writes extensively about the Middle East and foreign policy. In this conversation, Rhodes and Goldberg discuss the worldview of President Obama, focusing on Cuba, the Iran talks, and the continuing crisis across the broader Middle East. Here are Ben Rhodes and Jeff Goldberg.
1: Ben, for, for uh, those of you who don't know, those few of you who don't know, uh, is the Deputy National Security Advisor to the President. Um, he's been with the President since uh, since you were like 12 years old, actually, I think I, I met I met Ben during the first campaign. Actually, before the first campaign, even uh, when he was a young speechwriter, um, and now he is less young and more important, um, uh, and has done uh, has been right at the center of basically every hot-button issue the Obama administration has faced uh, in the world over the last. Uh, seven years or so, including uh, a couple issues we're going to focus on, including Iran and, and, and ISIS. And he was also, um, and uh, this was as a su- big surprise to me as anyone else, uh, he was also the secret, secret, right? Secret lead negotiator on the opening to Cuba. Uh, and we want to talk about that as well. So we're going we're gonna to talk um, for about five hours up here until we. <laughs> until we pass out as you point out and then we'll open up for questions for the eight of you who remain um we'll have plenty of time for questions at the end of our conversation but i wanted to um let's start with uh sort of the obvious thing to start with which is a a a tumultuous week uh and a, a lot of people are 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 calling last week for various reasons uh, the, the best week the president has ever had. So my, my question to you is, what is it like to have a good week in the White House? Well, um, actually every week is exactly like last week.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think um, what made last week particularly uh, meaningful was not just that there was a bunch of good news packed together, um, it's that all the issues that were resolved are things that we've been working on for years. Um, and we didn't know that they would um, succeed. I think the healthcare care decision was a huge weight on the entire enterprise, given how central that is to the uh, presidency. Um, the trade deal is central to our entire Asia Pacific policy. So the, the ripples of failure would have been uh, very pronounced. And the opportunities that come with success are similarly pronounced. Um, but then beyond that, I think what was interesting about last week is you know, there are the policies that you come in every day and you work on, like trade and health care, but then there's something else about the Obama presidency that I think we've always hoped uh, would take hold, which is essentially a steady movement towards a more inclusive uh, America. Um, and that's why uh, I think the combination of movement on the Confederate flag issue and the marriage equality decision, it felt like... Uh, that original promise that drew uh, many of us to President Obama uh, was suddenly evident um, in a way it hadn't
1: been before. Um, you've known him, uh, and you know his patterns of thought and his uh, emotional patterns better than almost anyone in the world by, by this point. Were you surprised when um, he sang Amazing Grace on, on Friday? I mean, wh- what was your reaction when, uh, during this uh, incredibly emotional... Uh, eulogy? Were you expecting, I mean, one of the, one of the raps on him is that um, he is too cool and, and too uh, Spock-like in his rationality. That was not, uh, that was not uh, an emotion-free moment by any means.
2: Well, you know, I think a lot of people who work for politicians, for powerful people, often end up saying, I, I wish everybody could see the person that I interact with on a daily basis. Um, and. I think what was really cathartic to a lot of us is that's the person we work with on a daily basis. Um, Someone who frankly internalizes a lot of the emotions of the job, uh, internalizes a a lot of what he feels people are going through in the country, um, internalizes a lot of the criticism that he gets and kind of carries it around and doesn't get a lot of moments uh, to just let the world see exactly who he is. Um, And you know, I think what you saw there, uh, we had a sense that he might sing. Um, he came up with this whole... Uh, I mean, I, as I was mentioning to you, Jeff, he, um, he wrote that speech. Uh, I, I've seen all these speeches um, and the processes that produced them for many years, uh, and that's a speech that he wrote himself as much as any other except, uh, I, I'd say equally, the Philadelphia Race speech. Um, and he kind of came up with this whole ingenious frame of grace. Um, and he mentioned that he might sing, but we didn't know. Um, And what was amazing is he was delivering the speech and he got to the last part where he was going to say the words of Amazing Grace. And I saw him, I was watching on TV and saw him stop for about 10 seconds. Uh, And you could tell he was thinking about whether to do this or not. Um, And then when he did, you just felt this surge of emotion um, in the room, uh, because of the, the tragedy of the nine people who were lost, but kind of the weight of history coming out um, at, at, all at once in a way that you don't ever see. And uh, I think for us, it was, um, you know, that was the person that we know that we see every day that we wish the rest of the world uh, could see. Um, and they did. Uh, and that, that was one reason
1: why last week was so um, kind of overwhelming. Let me, let me transition to something where he's shown a kind of. Um hyper-rationality or or, uh, hyper-logic, sometimes the discomfort of uh, Americans and and, and our allies and that's that's this uh, whole issue surrounding Iran and we're moving obviously toward some kind of uh, climactic moment very soon, maybe not tomorrow but within the next week or so on the Iran negotiations. Uh, And so there's there's two parts to my uh, question. The first is uh, I, I want you to talk a minute about where we actually are in the negotiations and how confident you are that you're going to get the deal that you want and a deal that you can convince the American public and Congress is worth doing. But the second in larger part, and you can take these together if you want, um, is this. Um, two weeks ago or a week ago, the State Department came out with its annual report on, on, on terrorism. And, and uh, very plainly stated that Iran is a prime state sponsor of terrorism. We know all of the bad things that Iran does uh, in the world, uh, in Yemen, in 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 Iraq. Obviously, they're the prime supporter of the world's most dastardly regime, the Assad regime, uh, and, and so on. Um, I, I want you to sort of grapple with, if you can, the sort of the moral consequences of uh, of making a deal that will allow Iran to maintain a nuclear infrastructure and that will help Iran become a richer country?
2: So, um, on the first question, um, I think uh, at this point in the negotiation, uh, it really just comes down to um, whether or not Iran will take a number of political decisions um, to get a deal. Uh, We know what the outlines of an agreement are. Uh, We know what Some of the sticking points have
1: been. So the foreign minister has just flown back to Tehran. Yeah,
2: the foreign minister has flown back to Tehran, and that's an indication that, again, in the end, these are political decisions that have to be made at the highest level of both countries. Um, We don't need to spend a lot more time finding creative solutions. We essentially know what a deal looks like. Do you think
1: he can sell the supreme leader on the last sticking points?
2: You know, uh, the proof will be in what the Iranians bring back to the table, and it really comes down to you know, whether or not we can have the access necessary to monitor an agreement and to verify that Iran is not just abiding by an agreement uh, but is not able to produce a covert pathway to a nuclear weapon. Um, And, again, we know how to design that access. We've spent many months designing this inspections and verification regime with the Iranians. We had a framework in Lausanne that lays that out. Um, If we get it, uh, if we get what we need in terms of our bottom lines, uh, we will be able to say... Uh, that we will be able to verify uh, that Iran not only is moving further away from a nuclear weapon in terms of the infrastructure that they're taking out, uh, the stockpile they're getting rid of, um, the reactor they're converting, um, but also that the access we have will give us the greatest uh, degree of confidence possible um, that they're not able to produce a covert uh, pathway. Um, and that's a whole technical discussion that we, we could certainly have. But on your second question, Um, Look, we're we're in a negotiation to resolve a specific issue. Uh, We've decided that if you can prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, that is an objective worth achieving through diplomacy. Um, And if Iran had a nuclear weapon, all the other activities it's engaged in would be much more dangerous. And Iran with a nuclear umbrella over Hezbollah's activities, over Assad's activities, over its threats towards Israel, would be much, much more dangerous uh, than Iran is today. And the region would become much more dangerous because it would precipitate a nuclear arms race. Um, and the notion that we should not solve this profound problem for our national security because we're going to have other differences with Iran, you know, I, I think doesn't hold up. Um, and the fact of the matter is, we did arms control agreements with the Soviet Union when they were supporting proxies all over the world uh, and engaged in activities that were uh, you know, directly impacting American uh, national security interests. Uh, and threatening, frankly, the existence of our country. Um, uh, Arms control uh, is something you do not with people who are your friends. It's something you do uh, with people uh, who are your adversaries. And you want to limit uh, their ability to access This is a big question,
1: by the way. Just open parenthetical for a second. A big question on a lot of people's minds is, does the President actually see Iran as an adversary? There is huge worry. I mean, you have united every American ally in the Middle East on this question, from Israel to Saudi Arabia, on on the question of of how the president understands Iran. There's a great fear that he thinks that he's going to be able to convert them toward becoming a, a rational actor on the international stage. Do you believe that, that they're going to change out of this? So, we believe that an agreement is
2: necessary and has to be good enough to be worth doing even if Iran doesn't change. Um, If 10 or 15 years from now uh, Iran is the same as it is today in terms of its government, the deal has to be good enough that it can exist on on those merits. That said, um, we believe that a world in which there is a deal with Iran uh, is much more likely to produce an evolution in Iranian behavior than a world in which there is no deal. Uh, In fact, to to take uh, some of the criticisms, if the notion is that Iran has been engaged in these destabilizing activities under the last several years when they've been under the pressure of sanctions well clearly sanctions are not acting as some deterrent against them doing destabilizing activities uh, in the region Uh, secondly uh, the very people inside of Iran who oppose this deal uh, are the worst actors inside of Iran, the hardliners uh, who are very comfortable being in a sanctions environment where they have illicit sources of funding uh, and they're empowered in the system Uh, there is an Iranian populace that clearly wants to move in a different direction. That's why they elected uh, a different type of candidate. That's not to say we're not going to have profound differences with President Rouhani. But the point is, I think, in a world of a deal, there is a greater possibility uh, that you will see Iran evolve in a direction in which they're more engaged with the international community uh, and less dependent upon uh, the types
1: of activities that they've been engaged in. How much money is Iran going to get in the first year of an agreement? So there is they're not going to receive
2: uh, sanctions relief until they complete their initial nuclear steps. Um, so the, you know, the, the really important front-loaded steps that will begin to take out centrifuges, get rid of stockpile, that will take them some period of time, um, estimates of six months to a year. Um, uh, at that point, uh, they will begin to be able to access uh, revenue that is theirs, oil that they've sold on the, uh, the international market that has been frozen, Uh, The estimates of the total amount of revenue that is frozen, they won't be able to access that all at once, so this will take a period of time, more than a year, um, uh, is $100 billion. Um, Again, that's their money. We put these sanctions in place to get a nuclear deal, um, and our assessment is that the majority of that money will go into an Iranian economy that is in badly in need of uh,
1: being shorted. Right. Right. I mean, you, you've argued and the president has argued that they're going to spend most of this money on domestic needs because they have this pent-up demand for hospitals, schools, roads, and... and the government li- debts. Government debt. But there is a qualitative difference between Hezbollah having 100,000 rockets, Hezbollah, of course, being funded by Iran, 100,000 rockets in Lebanon, and having 200,000 rockets in, in Lebanon. I mean, isn't it, is it, isn't it a bit over-optimistic to think that, that, that the Hezbollah and organizations like it won't get paid huge sums of money out of this deal, causing America's allies to have even more problems with Iran than it had before the deal? So the first point is what Iran has been engaged in. Look, clearly Iran has more money.
2: Uh, there will be more money available for different elements of the Iranian government. There will be more money uh, available to Iranian security services. What Iran does in the region is not particularly expensive. You know, uh, they, uh, you know, their defense budget uh, is a fraction of what our Gulf partners spend. Um, it is not a question of, of money. Uh, it's a question of our capability to disrupt that Iranian activity. Um, and the strategies that we have to interdict weapons shipments, to prevent cyber attacks, to frankly have a training capacity uh, for uh, proxies that uh, we and our partners support in the region uh, as against what the Iranians are doing, that's the conversation we had with the Gulf countries if this was all about money, then the sanctions would be succeeding in preventing that Iranian behavior. Uh, and clearly uh, you know, there's a bit of mythology that Iran just started doing these things a few years ago when the Obama administration came into office. I mean, uh, Iran has been engaged in these activities for decades in the region. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if you can deal with the nuclear issue, um, and if you can come up with uh, a set of capabilities and strategies to prevent uh, Iranian destabilizing activity in the region, that is going to be uh, what, it, what is going to have a greater difference than simply whether or not we're seeking to starve them of funds because, again, they prioritize funding for the IRGC. The IRGC has um, an ability to exist in an illicit economy, have their own funding sources. And the last thing I'd say, Jeff, to step back on this is, you know, what are the alternatives here? Um, we are trying to prevent a spiral into a major catastrophic, potentially, uh, escalation of conflict in the Middle East. If the Iranians were just advancing with their nuclear program, uh, right now our estimates are they're two to three months away from having a breakout capacity, Uh, the calls would come uh, to take military action because it is profoundly in our interest to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Why would we not test the proposition that we can address this issue diplomatically? Uh, That's what the president is willing to stick his neck out to do, is to say, we don't have to just accept that there is an inevitable spiral towards confrontation. Uh, And because we have these differences, therefore, we cannot address, through diplomacy, the nuclear question. That's accepting a logic that we're only going to be left with confrontation, because there's not a scenario in which this regime bends under the pressure of sanctions and just comes out with its arms up and says, okay, you can come in and dismantle our nuclear infrastructure. If the regime is as bad uh, as uh, some people in the region say, and we share the assessment that uh, they are that bad in terms of their activities in the region, why would they completely capitulate under the pressure of sanctions? They, they are much more likely to try to break out and get a nuclear weapon. So again, I, you know, I think people have to step back and say, what is the wiser course here? Uh, if we can get a nuclear agreement that imposes strict limitations for 10 to 15 years and has permanent transparency and verification measures, why is that not preferable to the
1: alternatives? The, um, it, it, one more thing on this, uh, in, in 2012, uh, the, the President in an interview uh, that I did for the Atlantic told me that, uh, that he, all options were on the table, that the military option was a live option for him and that as President of the United States I don't bluff. In other words he was not, not trying to trick the Israelis into not doing something, he was not trying to trick the Arabs into thinking that he was with them when he wasn't. After the Syria red line issue came up, uh, there became a, a new feeling in the Middle East that the President was bluffing. Can you, can you frame that a little bit for me and, and just answer my very simple question? Was the President kidding with me when he said that he wasn't going to bluff?
2: No, no. Look, let's take Syria first of all. Uh, after the President threatened military action, there was an agreement uh, that allowed us to remove Assad's declared chemical weapons stockpiles and destroy them outside of the country. Um, If we had bombed Syria, um, it is far more likely that that stockpile would have been either used uh, or moved underground. And frankly, today, we'd be talking about a Syria that is disintegrating with ISIL uh, moving across large swaths of territory with lots of unsecured chemical weapons. Um, We are better off in the world we are today have you done tentative. a
1: map overlay to see where ISIS is? Um, and we're going to do the traditional thing where the administration guy says ISIL and I say ISIS. No one knows why this is, but it's the way it is. But um, uh, it just it just is. It's like we part of say, nature. We could say dash. Da- dash. Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just part of nature now. Um, but I mean, ha- have you looked at where ISIS is and where those facilities were? How, how much of an yeah. overlay is there?
2: Look, uh, you know, there are there are opposition elements, including extremist opposition elements, that are. Uh, just for instance, um, in the vicinity of Damascus now, um, in Idlib province now. Um, I, you know, I, w- I don't want to get into too many specifics, but the Assad regime has lost a lot of territory in recent months. Um, and again, the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a sense that he should have just bombed Syria uh, to prove that he would bomb a country because he said he would. But the purpose of the red line was to deal with the chemical weapons issue. It, it, it's a bit like the Iranian question. Uh, if you can resolve the issue diplomatically, uh, why is it the case that you shouldn't do that because you have to show people you will use military force? You know, that is what uh, has drawn America into military engagements that have been, frankly, very difficult to extricate ourselves from. Um, and look, the president is measured, and he takes a lot of criticism. But the fact is you get the criticism, and the day after you use military action, it shifts to, well, what's the exit strategy? What's the plan here? Uh, The day that, I I can guarantee you, the day that we use military force uh, to take out the Assad regime, for instance, if that were to happen, people would say, what are you going to put in place next? Uh, Are you going to make sure that Assad goes? Are you going to prevent these people from fighting each other on the ground? Um, And I think these debates uh, become a a bit uh, caricatures of themselves, that the United States just has to go around the world uh, using military action to make the point that we'll use military action. This is a president who has used military action on many cases. He's used it in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Iraq, in Syria against ISIL, in Somalia, in Yemen, in Libya. This is not a president who has been unwilling to use military action, including taking huge risks, like ordering special forces raids deep into Pakistan or deep into Syria, when he felt that America's national security interests required it. And if Iran was on the verge uh, of obtaining a nuclear weapon, that clearly would require the United States to consider the use of military action. And we have done more under our administration to make that option possible. Uh, if you look at our force posture in the Gulf, in the region, uh, if you look at the capabilities that we have uh, uh, in place, um, we have a military option available.
1: Uh, the question is, should we exercise it without exhausting uh, diplomacy that could resolve the issue? Does he think that the military option in Iran is even a feasible option at this point, should this whole thing collapse? The, 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 well, the point, the, there is an option, right? There
2: is a military option that will set back Iran's nuclear capabilities. Uh, but again, uh, I think sometimes pe- people held up, hold up military options as if they're going to solve the problem entirely. Look, if we, be, let's be very clear. We could set back uh, Iran's nuclear program by some period of time and estimates range from one, two to three or four years. But then what happens? The Iranian regime would still be in place. They would have every incentive to kick out all inspectors so you have no visibility into what's happening. They'd have every incentive to do everything they could to get a nuclear weapon as soon as possible. That's what the scenario is when we use military action in Iran. And then people will say, well, you have to go into Iran to ensure that they're not breaking out in that way. Why is that a better world to live in than a world in which we can verify for 15 years that Iran is not even on the brink of obtaining a nuclear weapon, and then we can make
1: a judgment 15 years from now about what we're going to do going forward. So you're leaving it to President Chelsea Clinton, in <laughs> other words, to, to, to grapple with, the, uh, or George Bush the ninth or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever number. Uh, Let's, 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 I was let's trying to
2: think of a name I could say that wouldn't get me in trouble. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You're probably best just not. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me use Iran to pivot to a, a broader issue, which is the issue of an Obama doctrine such as there is an Obama doctrine. Last year, we were talking a lot in, in my little universe that the Obama doctrine was don't do stupid shit, if you recall. Um, uh, that, that, all, that provoked um, Hillary to suggest that that wasn't a great doctrine. We seem to have moved away from that, and we're now, this year, back to, in a way, a kind of a doctrine that probably was there originally, and and we, we, we lost track of it, which is there's no reason that America's adversaries have to continue to be America's adversaries. And that brings me, obviously, to Cuba which for me, in a way, was a test run for what you're doing with, or what you're trying to do, at least, with Iran. And Burma might have been the test run for what you're doing with Cuba. Can you frame this out a little bit? Frame out the president's thinking. We all remember from even back in 2007, 2008, the president, uh, then-Senator Obama, getting a certain amount of grief for saying that he's not scared to talk to America's enemies. It seems as if we're now seeing the fruition uh, of that. And, and maybe you could take us to how the decision was made to actually do something that hadn't been done for 50 years, which is a real uh, outreach to Cuba and what it means in, in Iran and, and other areas. Yeah. So um,
2: I, I think you're right. It's a return to, uh, I think, what was at the core of the 2008 campaign, which is um, a willingness to engage. Um, you know, Doctrine is often debated as having kind of a a mathematical formula for when you use military force. You know. um, and that's, I think, what he was resistant to do, is to say, you know, if X criteria uh, are met, I will go to war. Uh, you know, the Bush doctrine was to prevent uh, nations from getting WMD. That wasn't universally applied. Uh, that's not a criticism even of the Bush administration. There's not a formula that you can universally
1: apply. If it were USA universally force. applied, they would have done what?
2: They were going to war in North Korea and Iran. Um, North Korea obtained a nuclear weapon. Um, the, the The question is it's the president laid it out, um, we can engage adversaries without giving up any of our capabilities or freedom of action, and so why would we not test that proposition? So, as we discussed with respect to Iran, uh, we can test whether or not we can resolve the nuclear issue through engagement without giving up anything uh, in terms of our own capabilities, uh, in terms of our own ability to respond to uh, Iranian activities and frankly, we can test whether or not Iran can evolve into a more constructive uh, actor in the region. If they don't, we don't give up anything in terms of our capabilities to confront Iranian activities. Uh, Cuba, I think, is an even
1: starter. Well, you've case. given up your, your sanctions. I mean, you've given up your ability to squeeze their economy.
2: The sanctions are not. The sanctions were put in place expressly for the purpose of getting them to the negotiating table. We're keeping in place a whole host of other sanctions related to terrorism, human rights abuses, ballistic missiles. Uh, we are, and we are going to have the capacity to turn those sanctions back on, if it. Turns out that Iran cannot abide by an agreement. So, we're not giving up the sanctions architecture uh, over the course of the agreement as we're testing whether or not Iranian uh, Iranian compliance uh, is there. Um, To step back here, the point is um, why not uh, see whether or not we can move these relationships in different directions? Uh, With respect to Cuba, um, where did the idea come from? Well, the idea came from the fact that the president had always thought that this policy made no sense. You had a policy that was intended to squeeze Cuba uh, so that they would um, embrace democracy and human rights that had resulted in uh, the Castros running Cuba for decades uh, and the United States being isolated in the hemisphere um, and the Cuban people suffering uh, under the weight of our own sanctions. By any definition, it was a policy that had failed. Um, When we came into office, we were determined to change it. Uh, We did some initial steps to allow... Uh, Cuban-Americans to travel and send remittances. Then you had Alan Gross detained uh, in Cuba. And that was kind of the break, because we knew we wanted to move in a different direction. Uh, But that was not something we could do when you had a USID Was it a mistake
1: by by your administration to send Alan Gross in the first place to Cuba on his democratization mission?
2: I think that these democracy programs um, have been in place for a long time. I think the way in which some of them operate was clearly intended to provoke. Um, we make no apologies for provoke, uh, promoting democracy uh, around the world. Um, I think clearly uh, we want to make sure that those uh, programs don't put people at risk like Alan Gross. Uh, and Alan Gross was, was put at risk. Now his detention was unjust. Um, and we, would, uh, we rejected throughout the talks the notion that um, it was fair that he was detained for what he was doing. Uh, the Cubans would argue back that our laws would prevent him from doing that. Um, but the fact of the matter is Um, He was detained, Um, it was an unjust detention to be holding someone uh, who frankly had no uh, adversarial intent towards the Cuban government, uh, and we needed to get him out of prison before we could move forward with broader policy changes. But we also wanted to engage in a conversation with the Cuban government uh, to see and test whether or not they were willing to move in a different direction that could open up the space for uh, greater uh, change and reform inside of Cuba, concurrent with us taking those uh,
1: policy changes. So tell the story. I mean, how did you become the Cuban negotiator?
2: Um, Well, you know, after uh, the president was re-elected, we had uh, a meeting, you know, a very long meeting uh, in the situation where we went through the priorities for the second term, the things that we wanted to do, uh, particularly affirmatively. um, And we returned to this question of Cuba. Um, And, you know, a lot of other people, I think, you know, wanted to do a lot of other things in the administration and move on to different places. Um, but this was the one thing that um, that I wanted to do. Um, and we talked it through with him and with um, you know the people who worked on Cuba policy in the White House. Uh, and they, they actually felt that um, it'd be a good fit to have someone who was known to be very close to the president because the Cubans are very wary of engagement and they want to know that the engagement is reaching the top. They felt like there had been several other efforts of engagement, where it turned out to be kind of Lucy with the football, uh, where they had conversations with the Americans, they reached a certain point, uh, but then there was never you know, follow through. We can debate whether it was the Cubans' fault or, or not, uh, but that was their perception. So they wanted to, someone in those talks who was very close to the president, um, and, uh, and you know, they wanted it to be discreet. Um, and so we launched this channel, we sent them a message saying we wanted to initiate a dialogue about prisoners and other issues. Uh, and what was interesting is, at the beginning of those discussions, and we had, you know, 100 hours of discussions with the Cubans. And you'd be
1: sneaking off to? We'd be Europe. sneaking
2: off to Canada and um, uh, other places. And the, um, the Cubans started, they just wanted their p- people back. They had three Cubans who were imprisoned in the United States, and they just wanted them back. Um, and we started talking uh, and talking about how we wanted to change the relationship. Um, And then they started talking about some of the things that they were considering doing in terms of their own uh, system. And, you know, the idea of reestablishing diplomatic relations was not something that was, you know, immediately attractive to them. Um, You know, they're very comfortable in a position of being in opposition to the United States. Uh, They have built, uh, you know, the the legitimacy in part uh, of much of their approach around the fact that they're resisting American uh, aggression. So it was not a no-brainer by any stretch of the imagination for the Cubans to agree to to a process of normalization and to an establishment of diplomatic relations. Um, But I think what we came to a view of in the the discussions is that if we were going to take these very difficult steps of having this prisoner exchange where we get a Cuban uh, intelligence asset of ours and Alan Gross would be released, they'd get these uh, three Cubans, that we needed to broaden Uh, the scope of what we were talking about, that this would be an opportunity. We'd have one opportunity to make a big move together, um, and that we should try to do as much as we could in that space. Uh, And that led to them taking certain confidence-building measures, like the release of uh, a list of political prisoners uh, that we provided to them. Um, uh, That led to, frankly, this discussion of setting out a process of normalization. Uh, That led to a, a discussion of establishing diplomatic relations and sending a signal to the world that essentially we're willing to leave the past behind. Um, and one of the things that I think made a difference to them, and this was evident in Raul Castro's remarks in Panama, is they saw President Obama as different from the people who come before. Um, and I remember that one of the turning points in the negotiations, and, and we haven't talked much about this, but you know, we reached a real logjam with them at the, by the end of uh, 2013. They were not agreeing to really anything other than their guys getting home and Alan Gross being released. And we wanted this to be a broader package. We wanted to get an intelligence asset back. We wanted to put other things on the table. And that's when President Obama went to Nelson Mandela's funeral in South Africa. Uh, and he saw Raul Castro on the dais and he, uh, he shook his hand. And that, you know, caught the Cubans off guard. Um, and when we saw them next, they said, you know, we. Uh, we didn't, you know, y- your president treated us with respect. Um, nobody's done that before. Um, and, you know, I said, well, as if not only was it the appropriate thing to do, you see someone, why would you snub him and not shake his hand? If, if the Cubans have the right to be any place, uh, it's certainly at the funeral of Nelson Mandela who they helped in many ways. Um, and that, you know, uh, I think that they, nobody had tried treating them with respect. Now we made very clear that we're still going like to have the president. The
1: president actually felt that Cuba's activities against South Africa in Angola, or how they would frame it in Angola and elsewhere, were were legitimate and therefore worthy. I think he of, felt
2: that, like the notion that you know he shouldn't be invited. That you know we should have should we have insisted that we wouldn't attend if Raul Castro was there, would have been, would have not made any sense given the, the history. Now again, we made very clear in every meeting. We're gonna have differences with your political system. We are gonna find much to criticize. We're gonna continue our democracy program. We're gonna continue your human rights practices. It doesn't mean we, we like everything you do, um, but we're gonna get farther by engaging with this government and opening up Cuba so that there can be more business, more American travel, more engagement between the American and Cuban people. That holds out a lot greater promise uh, to promote the things we care about. Okay,
0: but here, than here's, the,
1: here's the, the crucial question: Is how much weight do you give to to, to the traditional American role of pushing democracy? forward in this. I mean, Cuba, I mean, look, it's early in the process, but Cuba doesn't show many signs of liberalizing, uh, either the way it treats uh, dissidents, the way it, it, it treats access to information. Burma, which of course came before Cuba, is having its own set of pretty terrible problems right now. In other words, American recognition of the Burmese government hasn't achieved sort of a transformational yeah. democracy. You don't have to. And, choose, and so yeah. it brings us to Iran, how much you can honestly <laughs> expect and how well, much are you demanding. But
2: look, on the democracy side, um, you, you're not going to transform these societies overnight. Um, but the fact is, Burma has advanced much further in the few years in which we've engaged it than
1: it did in the
2: decades The government previous. right now
1: is overseeing a genocide of its Muslim minority, though. I mean, it's not.
2: I, I, look, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't use that, that term widely. What they are, are overseeing is a situation in kind State where people are summarily denied their rights and are subject uh, too often to violence from the local population there. Um, the com- complexity of that situation is um, the fact that, frankly, uh, what we have to find as constituencies in Burma who recognize uh, that it affects the entire country when you have a, a state like this in which, frankly, there are. Uh, local actors uh, who are exploiting uh, intolerance. What I would say is their political system is opening. Uh, They have released political prisoners. They have released Aung San Suu Kyi. There is an election coming up later this year. Uh, They have had contested elections. They have had parliamentary debates. This is a nascent beginning of a process for them. It will take time. In Cuba, I think what I would say is, look, what we were doing was not promoting democracy. Uh, What we were doing had provided the Cuban government with a rationale that... You mean it the 50-year policy yeah, before? It had failed utterly. Uh, it, we, we might have felt good about it. It might have allowed us to stand up and make speeches about how we're supporting democracy in Cuba, but the result was the opposite. The result was we were handing this government uh, an excuse that it used to great effect in Cuba, in the region, and around the world, frankly, uh, to say that the reason that we have to have all these restrictions in place is because the Americans want to come over through our government. Um, and you know, they were very comfortable in that, in that setting. Uh, we were not making headway. It's not like, you know, another month or year, we, we had the Castros on the ropes, and, and they were just about to fall, and then we did this. It was the opposite. Uh, they had w- weathered the fall of the Soviet Union. They had weathered the special economic period in the 90s when they were squeezed tremendously. They had weathered the Bush administration pouring more money in the democracy programs. They were fine. They were comfortable. And the fact so of the you matter So you see well, an analogy who, what, between... What, yeah. And what promotes American democracy? Is it just our rhetoric, the strength of our rhetoric? Uh, and, and funding that, frankly, is not reaching a broad number of Cubans, but a very small number of Cubans? Or is it going to be Americans traveling all over Cuba? American businesses going down to Cuba? American businesses helping build the telecommunications and in- infrastructure in Cuba that can facilitate the access to information? Jeff, our policies, we're, we're making it illegal for us to sell apps in Cuba. Wouldn't you want Cubans to be able to access information? Wouldn't you want It depends Cubans? on the
1: app, I guess.
2: Well, I mean,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm not, you know, yeah, no, I, to each his own. Yeah. You know, I don't know what you're into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But, but,
1: yeah. Like, listen, I'm sure the NSA knows it's on my phone, but, but, right? But, you but, know, whatever.
2: No, Apple has good
1: encryption. Yeah. But
2: the, 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 the fact that, look, President Obama gets a lot of criticism, but, you know, in part it's because he's, he's taken on some sacred cows. You know, you cannot make an, a nuclear deal with Iran. You cannot engage Cuba. Well, why not? Because you cannot. It's not how we do it. You know, we do it this way. Uh, and, and, and look, he, he's willing to take the criticism, but the, here's what this is all about. right? The, the Obama doctrine. And our whole foreign policy. We have to reposition the United States to be able to lead in this century. We came into office in the middle of a global financial crisis. We had 150,000 troops, uh, in uh, 180,000 in Iraq and Afghanistan. A completely unsustainable Uh, resource allocation in Iraq and Afghanistan, two countries uh, that frankly are not going to dictate the course of the 21st century. We've been trying steadily to reposition the United States, to refocus on the Asia Pacific through the TPP agreement, to withdraw that resource allocation and put in place a more sustainable counterterrorism policy that doesn't eliminate risk uh, but manages it and uh, aims to prevent attacks on the United States. And Cuba and Iran are part of it in this way. Uh, We don't have to accept another pull into another war in the Middle East, in Iran, if we can resolve this issue diplomatically. In uh, the Americas, we are much better positioned, not just in Cuba, but in the whole hemisphere. We are able to have a conversation we never could have there because we go to these summits and all people would talk about is our Cuba policy. Now we can go and talk about democracy, human rights, development, energy, and the things that are actually in
1: America's interests. Let me um, ask one more question and then we'll go to questions out here. Uh, But you, you talked about Iraq and Afghanistan not dictating the course of the 21st century. Obviously, they're not going to dictate the course in any positive way. That's Asia. That's other places in the world, uh, or at least as we can see it now. But we have a tremendous, tremendous terrorism problem. You know, when President Obama came into office, there were pockets of terror in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, a little bit Somalia. Now you have half of Syria and Iraq under the under the control of a group that, on the one hand, has not uh, shown—I mean, it's killed Americans, obviously—but has not shown uh, uh, the the obvious desire yet to attack American targets at home or or large targets overseas. But it it somehow seems—it sometimes seems inevitable that they will pivot. And 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 figure out that America is one of their enemies in a sort of declarative way. They I mean, figured so, it out. Right? Well, I mean, they figure. Yeah, I mean, they're they're somewhat there already. So so, I mean, the the question the question is, um, it's. ISIS ISIL. Seems to be still on the the march, and we could talk about pivoting to Asia or rebalancing toward Asia, um, but. Is there a problem when the president leaves office in January 2017, nineteen? What is he going to be handing his successor in terms of this terror uh, profile in in the Middle East? Right now, it does not look very good, and the trend lines don't look very good. And you could be seeing, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could be seeing at some point in the near future Damascus actually falling, Lawrence of Arabia style, to uh, to some kind of collection of extremist groups, including ISIS.
2: Yeah, so. Um What we need to, I think the president would like to leave the the next president, um, is essentially, um, well, well, first of all, very practically, uh, we would like to uh, degrade ISIL significantly, and particularly in Iraq, uh, push them out of a number of these population centers um, so that um, uh, their space is shrinking in eastern Syria in terms of their safe haven. Um, But what I think we want to do is have in place a set of capabilities across the region Uh, that can allow us uh, to go after ISIL and and also allow us to be training security forces uh, that can do the work uh, of holding that ground. We've seen where we have partners on the ground fighting, you can push back ISIL. You know, they were in Kobani, Um, uh, several months ago, the Kurds have fought in northern Syria, and they've not just pushed them out of Gabani, they've pushed them out of the whole border area uh, along the Syria-Turkey border, just as the Kurds in northern Iraq have done, just as some of the Iraqi units have done that we've trained uh, around Baghdad. Um, So what we need to do is expedite our ability to train forces on the ground that can fight in concert with our capabilities uh, from the air, Um, to essentially be able to deal with the safe haven and roll it back over time.
1: At this moment, who was more dangerous to uh, American national security interests in the Middle East? The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, or ISIS?
2: Well, I'd say ISIS is actively trying to kill Americans. Um, there uh, There is a constant threat from an organization that has, as one of its objectives... Um, killing Americans uh, wherever they can—that—that um, that is
1: an immediate. Threat. The Revolutionary Guards have a long history of participating in anti-American violence. They and sponsoring. They,
2: they pose a profound threat uh, to uh, the stability of the region, uh, to some of our partners in the region, um, to frankly, what is going to be necessary in order to have, you know, some semblance of order. One Americans are not going to impose order on the Middle East. You know that's. Too often, I think the, the frame is, well, what are you going to do to you know, solve this problem over here? You know? we, we can do a lot to address our interests, to deny terrorist safe havens, to allow for the free flow of, of energy and commerce. Um, we're not going to fix those problems. Ultimately, there's going to have to be uh, some process between Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, Iran, other actors in the region, uh, to have political solutions that can be sustainable in this part of the world. We can provide a lot of the, the muscle that, uh, again, provides confidence in people in making those decisions and in knowing that if certain activities are engaged in, the United States will take action. Um, But uh, we have to be supportive of countries resolving these through political accommodation as well.
1: Um, Do one more thing before we have questions. Um, This is an issue that's uh, you've been deeply involved with, just been a policy change in the last week. It's an issue uh, close to us at The Atlantic for uh, reasons that a lot of people know now. Talk a little bit about uh, your government, your, your administration's policy about Americans held captive by terror groups, and, and what shifts you're making and how you're going to protect Americans who fall into these situations, and what you're going to do to get them out.
2: Well, um, you know, I, I think what we've seen is uh, you know, this has always been a, a, a terrible challenge. You've seen somewhat of an uptick in recent years, because terrorist organizations are turning to hostage taking more aggressively Um, in in large part to obtain funding through ransoms. Also, in part, I think we saw with uh, ISIL uh, because of the the ability to terrorize um, through the taking of hostages and, tragically, the killing of hostages. I think what we found in looking back at how we'd managed those situations and and other situations where there have been hostages is that we weren't doing as good a job as we'd we'd made mistakes. Uh, We weren't doing as good a job as we could have in a number of ways. Uh, One, our government... You know, Sometimes you see in government that uh, people have a lot to do. And if something is not their express mission, it doesn't always get the focus it demands. And so you have hostage cases that are handled by very well-meaning and capable people in the FBI, uh, in the State Department, uh, at the NSC, who are working on a lot of things. And frankly, they needed, we needed to establish a group of people in the government who essentially were given the mission that you know, this is going to be a priority. This is, we want to incentivize you to spend more time on this. Um, so one is just, again, having what we're calling a fusion cell, a group of people from state, FBI, the intelligence community, the Pentagon, White House, who are dedicated to resolving these issues. And, and, and that's going to be many different things. That's going to be negotiations with foreign governments. That could be rescue missions. Uh, that could be, uh, again, outreach to the families. That leads to the second point, which is we did not have people engaging the families who Uh, I think we're prepared to be doing that. In other words, you know, you had people who essentially, part of their job was to meet with uh, the families uh, of people who were held hostage, folks who didn't necessarily have the training to to do that, to deal with people who were in incredibly difficult and traumatic circumstances. Um, And so part of what we want to do, again, is make clear to the families, and the families often didn't know who to talk to. Uh, And I heard this from some of the families I dealt with, who are not dealing with terrorist organizations, but who have loved ones held in other governments, who said, I didn't know who to call. One day, uh, I was told to call so-and-so. It would change the next week. That made, me made an already confusing and heartbreaking situation more difficult. People were getting more aggravated by their engagements with the US government than they were getting assured. And if that's the case, we weren't doing it right. Uh, and so part of what we're also able to do is say, here's the point of contact for the family. Here's who you call at the FBI. Here's who you call at the State Department. Um, and to make sure there's predictability, and, frankly, that we're sharing more information. Um, you know, that, and, and look, that we are forthcoming. You know, oftentimes we get information related to hostages is very sensitive, but we should be able to share that with families. Um, it, that's not like releasing it publicly. Um, so, again, the second part is engaging families and providing them the information. And then the third part is just on this question of ransoms. The U.S. government is going to continue to have a policy that we don't pay ransoms. Um, we see it as a fundraising vehicle for terrorist organizations. Um, if we go down that road, uh, frankly, uh, we're breaking a principle that we seek to get other governments uh, to reject. Um, and frankly, we'd be in the very difficult position uh, morally uh, of paying uh, direct funds to terrorist organizations like ISIL. However, uh, frankly, uh, there's an other side morally, which is that if your family member is taken hostage, you want to do heaven and earth and everything you can to get your family member home. Um, and you should not be threatened with prosecution for doing something that, um, frankly, uh, I think any family member would try to do, which is what, what can I do to get my, right. my, my loved one home? So we made changes. Frankly, a lot of that uh, benefited from uh, David Bradley and his uh, the group of people he had working on these cases. David helped, I think, the families present uh, to us their concerns in a way that was very useful in terms of, you know, Everything we did grew out of those engagements with the families, um, and hopefully we can get better at this going forward.
1: Let me um, call very quickly on, on questions. With regard to engaging adversaries, uh, talk about Vladimir Putin and Russia. There's a, a lot of written thought that the Western movement to bring Ukraine into NATO, not just the common market, was a vital threat to Sebastopol and led to the invasion of the Crimea, are we, I know we're rearming Eastern Europe now in, uh, in order to have a real threat and to have material in position, but is there, is there a next step in mind to get back to engagement?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we have been able to maintain engagement with the Russian government even as we've had these profound differences um, over Ukraine. Uh, and the Iran talks, for instance, they've been uh, constructive. I think with respect to Ukraine, um, look, we've made clear um, that we understand the Russians have interests um, in, in Ukraine. Um, they, they've been very clear with us for many years uh, about their objections uh, to NATO enlargement, um, to efforts that they saw to encircle them through missile defense systems. However, the problem in Ukraine is that they are flouting basic international norms that the international system depends upon. You know, if there is a precedent that you can, in a cost-free manner, successfully violate the sovereignty and territorial integrity of another country to achieve your objectives, um, not only does that present a huge challenge for the people of Ukraine, uh, but uh, it has knock-on effects because it sends a message to other places that you're not going to face a cost. So we focused on building a cost on Russia. And the sanctions that we have in place with the Europeans, which were just... Um, reapproved, approved um, are imposing a significant economic cost on the the Russians. Uh, We want that to affect their calculus as they consider what to do next. But uh, we also have made clear to them, look, we want to find a diplomatic resolution here. There's only a diplomatic resolution. Uh, You know, nobody wants to have uh, a war uh, in Europe, a a war in Ukraine. Uh, The Russians are the ones who are provoking that with what they're doing in eastern Ukraine. But we've provided an off-ramp uh, whereby, again, uh, the Ukrainians take steps, I think, to address questions of decentralization and federalism in eastern Ukraine, uh, and the Russians pull back their weaponry and support for these separatists, and you have a calming of the situation. Um, and I think the Russians have not ever fully taken that path, but they've kept the their door open to it. Um, and so right now you have this very tenuous Minsk diplomatic process that provides that off-ramp um, that has only been partially fulfilled. Um, And we just have to continue to make clear to Russia uh, that if you go further into Ukraine, the cost will be further to you. Um, But if you uh, take this uh, diplomatic alternative that is available to you, uh, there can be a settling of the situation. Um, And over time, I think there can be uh, a rebuilding of the relations between the United States, Europe, and Russia. Um, But uh, again, I think uh, the principle and the reason why um, it's worth uh, taking a firm stand uh, is that the international system can't work if the most basic rules uh, are violated.
1: There's a question back there. I recently attended a lecture by David Kilcullen, an Australian who advised General Petraeus at some time, and I was left with the impression that, the, uh, that ISIS is actually the Baathists reasserting themselves uh, in, in Iraq and in the area. Would you comment, please?
2: Yeah. Well, we, we see some of that. Uh, so what we see is a situation where you had al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, you know, the organization, that the al-Qaeda affiliate that was formed after the invasion of Iraq. Um, you had remnants of, of that organization. But then what you had is uh, a combination of, uh, I think, two principal events. Inside of Iraq, the Maliki government was governing in more and more sectarian fashion that was alienating Sunnis. And so you had former Baathist elements uh, who had military capabilities uh, and a good sense of tribal networks um, who joined with uh, AQI. And at the same time, you also had a collapse of authority in eastern Syria where Sunnis were fighting against uh, the Assad regime. Uh, And this became kind of a ripe uh, ground uh, for uh, these disparate uh, threads uh, to come together under the extremist banner uh, of, of ISIL. Um, and, you know, that has allowed them to uh, galvanize people around the world because of the Syrian conflict. What drew foreign fighters to Syria, I think, was a desire to fight Assad that then morphed into uh, this desire to be a part uh, of ISIL. And then inside of Iraq, I think what you saw is that, uh, you know, they, they had people who knew from fighting a multi-year insurgency against the United States, you had people who were militarily capable, who knew how to use insurgent tactics, and you had Sunni populations in places like Mosul, who didn't necessarily like their agenda, but didn't want to cooperate with the Iraqi security forces, who they saw as acting on behalf of a Shia-led government. Um, Where does that lead you? That leads you to the notion that you need to invest those Sunnis in both the military solution against ISIL, and we're trying to do that by increasing our training uh, in Anbar province uh, in western Iraq. And you need Sunnis who are invested in the political project in Iraq. Uh, And that's why uh, we've supported a new government under Prime Minister Bodi that is uh, uh, taking some steps to reach out to the Sunni populations, um, both in terms of symbolism but also legislation, to make them feel more invested in um, uh, uh, what is essentially going to be an Iraq that has a degree of decentralization um, but can hold together and deal with the immediate threat of ISIL. Good morning, Mary Louise Kelly. Focus for a moment on Greece. Uh, where the banks are shut today, the economy is in chaos, and there seem to be no good alternatives for the path forward. What is the White House position? What would you like to see happening in Greece in the yeah, next Yeah, what are you going to do about Greece, Ben? What are you going to do about Greece? <laughs> <laughs> one of the, um, just to take a step back, one, one of the, the, you know, there's this kind of constant narrative of, you know, anxiety. Is the United States in decline? Is China, you know, rising? and this gets to Greece, I promise, um, the, um, people forget that China and no other country is trying to play the role we play in the world. Um, they're not aiming to sign up to be responsible for security in the Middle East, be responsible for the global economy, be responsible for setting and enforcing international norms. There's not another country that is... We, we are the ones convincing ourselves that somehow there's another country that is trying to play the role we play. And this leads me to Greece, which is... The president's been engaged on this for for years. When things, uh, I think, uh, were particularly difficult in 2011, 2012, he spent more time talking to Eurozone leaders uh, about this subject than anything else. And I remember there was a G20 where uh, there was some reporting that the Chinese were going to come and they were going to buy Greece. They were going to write the check that was going to solve the problem. And of course, that didn't happen. And the president was in. Uh, all-night sessions with the European leaders uh, and the European uh, Union leaders about this issue. And um, when we saw him after, he said, well, how did that go? And he said, you know, it's funny, I, I didn't see Hu Jintao at that meeting. You know." <laughs> um, but uh, the fact is, we've been engaged on this. Uh, what we would like to see, again, is a situation in which Greece is able to stay in the Eurozone, um, uh, is able to make necessary reforms, but be on a pathway to some growth that can offer hope to the people of Greece. Um, the president has spoken to Chancellor Merkel uh, yesterday. He'll speak, I'm sure, to other European leaders about this. Uh, I will resist saying more uh, um, because uh, I don't want to say something that um, you know, provokes a market response. Who would ever think you yeah. could move markets? Yeah, yeah. Huh? Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, we would like to see, look, this has been an incredibly difficult issue. Um, we, would like, you know, we would like to see the European project in the Eurozone weather this uh, challenge. Um, we're, we're mindful that the people of Greece need to have a sense of hope that there will be growth, uh, but we're also you know, uh, mindful and have had many discussions with the Germans and others in Europe that uh, frankly they're, you know, they have to have the confidence that Greece will, will, will follow a reform program as well. Yeah. Please um, go ahead. I'd like to ask a question about our great frenemy China, friend-enemy, right, I think we can say that. Um, given how different um, China is culturally, the leaders and the people, et cetera, background, values, view of the world. When you look ahead at our you know, political, military, et cetera, relationship with them, it's going to be the ball game in a lot of ways in the next 50 years. How do you negotiate that relationship when the fundamental premises, worldviews, values, et cetera, are so different from a Western approach?
1: Yeah. So if you could just in one minute talk about the next hundred years of U.S. China relations. This is like a test. This is a, this is a test.
2: One of, the th- one of the things I think that is, is, is evident in the U.S.-China relationship is that we are much more interdependent uh, than I think people remember. Um, you know, our economies have uh, you know, such an enormous uh, uh, interdependence. Uh, we have a, a common investment in stability um, in the Asia Pacific region. We, we both benefit from that. Um, so even though we have those differences, um, we would suffer mightily from a conflict. And what we've tried to do with the Chinese over the, uh, over the years is say, essentially, you know, let's identify the issues where we can work together. Um, and we've tried to move them into being a more assertive and responsible global actor. And climate change is the focal point of that effort right now because you can't solve that problem without the Chinese. Let's identify the areas where we're going to have differences. And we're just going to have to, uh, we're, we're gonna have to um, address them very directly. The cyber issue has been a perennial one. Um, for instance, uh, where we see China moving into space uh, where they're stealing, uh, not just conducting espionage, but, uh, uh, again, intellectual property and things that make it difficult for U.S. businesses. And the case we make there is uh, you're creating an environment that is ultimately going to be harmful to you because U.S. businesses need to have the confidence that they can invest and act in China without uh, their uh, trade secrets being taken away. Um, But then there are areas of real difference on human rights uh, and a range of other issues. Uh, Our ability to balance all that, our ability to be candid about where we disagree, um, our ability to identify areas where we can cooperate, um, I think is going to do a lot to shape the environment. Um, The last two things I'd just say, though, is we see China in the Asian context. Um, So part of how we address this environment of the next hundred years is not just our engagement with China, it's our engagement with Southeast Asian countries, with India, with Australia. Uh, that, frankly, we want a rules-based order in the Asia-Pacific, like we've had in the transatlantic community, where countries are following the rules of the road economically, that's what TPP is very much about, setting standards, but also resolving disputes. And that's not just something we do bilaterally with the Chinese. If we have other countries invested in that type of rules-based order, um, again, not just India, but ASEAN countries, Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, ultimately, we want that to be an incentive structure for China, Uh, to play by those rules. And the biggest test of this right now is the South China Sea, where we see very assertive uh, Chinese activity that, frankly, uh, is potentially destabilizing. But part of that is not just kind of going directly to the Chinese and complaining and and having our own um, military exercises to demonstrate our commitment to freedom of navigation. It's working with the other countries in the region to get them in a common space around how we're going to solve these problems, consistent with international law. Because it will be much harder for one big country to bully a smaller one if those countries are taking common positions. Uh, And that's what the United States can uniquely do, uh, I think,
1: in Asia Pacific. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Appreciate it.
0: That was Ben Rhodes and Jeff Goldberg, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival June 29, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.